Let's again join together in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we share the words of Samuel. Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. May we hear and obey to your glory. Amen. So we're in the book of Samuel. We're in chapter 3 of 1 Samuel. And tonight we're looking at one of the most familiar sections of this book. One of the two best known stories. The call of Samuel and the killing of Goliath certainly are the two best known, most loved of the stories in this uh, book. But before we get to our text for this evening, let me again take you through the background to what's happening behind the story. What's happening in the nation of Israel at that time? Things were a mess. Moral bankruptcy in the nation, spiritual bankruptcy in the church. Last Sunday evening, Scott helped us look at the seriously sinful practices that were uh, occurring in the worship center, the heart of the religion of Israel at Shiloh. Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were engaging in every manner of wickedness. It's a desperately dark tale. But we ought not to be surprised. We have to remind ourselves that we live in a fallen world. And as a consequence of living in this fallen world, everywhere we look there are loads of problems. So there are loads of problems on the horizontal plane and there are loads of problems on the vertical plane. We have messed up human relationships so there are, there are problems out there. And we have wicked hearts, and and there are problems in here. There are external problems, there are internal problems. Relations with other people and our relationship with God. And one of the big lessons of the book of Samuel, one of the the back stories that we need to remind ourselves of, is that, that people mistakenly think that they can deal with the problems out there if only they could get a better ruler. If only they get a better ruler, then everything will be all right. So we see throughout the opening section of this book that they're searching for a king. Later we discover that that Samuel is the king maker. He is the one who anoints the king for which they cried. And again, people who want their internal problems sorted, they look for a better ruler for the external problems. They look for a better religion for their internal problems. Again, the difference between religion and gospel is helpfully uh, identified for us by Tim Keller, who says, religion makes us proud of what we have done. The gospel makes us proud of what Jesus has done. But there's this great quest in the world for a better ruler, a better religion. Outward problem solved, inward problem solved. And we have to understand, and hopefully you know, that not until these two things merge in the person of King Jesus can we ever find the solution. The search will never end until it meets with him. And you know how this works. We, we see this longing for a better ruler acted out in our world every day. So sorry for the politics, but uh, this is a, a characterization of this. But you know, people say, and you will hear it, that to deal with the problems on the horizontal plane, we must stay part of the European Union. Because if we leave the European Union, we'll have no medication, we'll have no food. It's going to be terrible, very scary things will happen if we leave the European Union. And you know, other people will say, 
If we don't leave the European Union, very scary things are going to happen. Foreigners will flood the country. They'll take all the jobs. They'll steal all our benefits and they'll overburden our national health service. We, we have to leave or, or else it's going to be so bad. So if we stay, it'll be bad. If we leave, it'll be bad. What are we to do? What does the Bible say? Well, the Bible says we live in a fallen world. And scary things will always happen until the Lord returns. Get over it. You're not going to find the answer to the broken relationships and the problems with this world by finding a better political solution. A better ruler will never work. Jesus, as king of our hearts, is the only answer. And again, we're going to come back and back to this theme because that's what Samuel is all about. And again, as you go through the book of Samuel, you see this little scattered idea of how the answer to the problems of our fallen world will be found in the birth of a baby. The answer to the world's need is in a baby's cry. A child is to be born, a special child. And the special child will proclaim the word of God. So we find our text this evening, 1 Samuel 3, verse 1. Now the boy Samuel, this little boy, was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And the word of God was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. Samuel is born. He is the child born much longed for to the barren woman. He's the last of the judges. He's the first of the great prophets. He is born into this world to solve the need for that time in the nation of Israel. But he must point us to the baby who would be born in Bethlehem to deal with our sins and deceive us. He was a baby who did not come with the word of God, but who was the word of God. As John in his prologue announces, the word became flesh. But tonight we see a baby, a boy born, who becomes one who declares the word of God to a needy nation. Three things to note about this. And the first is that at that time, there was a rarity of the word of God, a rarity of the word of God. There was no frequent vision. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. And as if to help us picture in our minds the the dark spiritual state of uh, the nation of Israel, that the author gives us two little pictures. He, He says... Eli's sight had grown dim. Number one. He says the, the, the lamp in the tabernacle had not yet gone out, but it seems like this. It was going out. It was burning dimly. And so we see that the spiritual light, the life of the nation, was burning dimly and seemed to be about to be extinguished. These were dark days. And the people were living in whatever way they felt was right for them. They were doing as they pleased. Proverbs 29 verse 18 tells us that where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. Wherever God's word is not declared and responded to in obedience... There is darkness, there is a disorder, and we see that in the section we were looking at last week of, of chapter 2. Hophni and Phinehas did as they pleased. God had given them strict rules as to how they were to do everything, but they did whatever they wanted because God's word was cast aside. And we have to remind ourselves, and again and again, God makes it clear that where there is this darkness, where there is disorder, where there is this mess, God does not allow it to 
remain unchallenged. He will speak. You know Genesis 1, verses 2 and 3. We read, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. As at the beginning, there was darkness and there was disorder, but God's word spoke and brought light and, 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 and uh, order to this mess. And that's really, in a sense, the, the message of, of this chapter, indeed, the story of Samuel. There was disorder, there was darkness, but God's word came. And this was hope and help for the nation. Many centuries later, God would send a messenger from the deep south into the northern tribes of the land of of Israel. And he would come bringing this message, the words with which we began our time together this evening. Amos 8, 11 to 12 says this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the word of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea, and from north to east they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. God brings judgment on Israel, and the the judgment is to withhold his word from the people. And there are times in nations, there are times in denominations, there are times in congregations when God judges people with a famine of hearing his word. It's difficult for us to imagine how it could happen, but it happens. It has happened regularly in seasons throughout history. We must realize it can happen today and we must ever be on our guard. Hopefully you're familiar with how central to the days of Reformation was this great desire that God's word would be allowed to speak to the people. That the ordinary people would have the word of God in a language that they could understand. So William Tyndale, who who gave his life for this cause, desired that every English ploughboy would know the word of God better than the Pope in Rome. But up to that time, before God moved in, in Reformation days, there was this great famine of hearing his word. There was spiritual bankruptcy in the church. But God unleashed his word into the world. The Bible got into the hands of people and there was reformation, there was revival, there was renewal. I've certainly told some of you, I don't know whether I've told everybody, but I'll use the illustration again, that many, many years ago as an arrogant young minister, I was in a little prayer group and I was complaining about a particular congregation saying that for decades the word of God had not been preached in that congregation. And the late gone government looked over at me and said, But the word of God was read there every Sunday. I was rebuked because, yes, we preachers can get things terribly wrong and we can mess things up, but we cannot hinder God from speaking when his word is read. And he, should he choose, makes himself known. So I hope as a congregation you are deeply grateful for your spiritual heritage. You have a long heritage of biblical preaching in this place. Not every Presbyterian church has known that blessing. But we must not take it for granted, and we must not allow the message of God's word to be silenced in our hearts, in our church, or in our land. We must make it known. There can be a famine of hearing the word of God. 
But sometimes that's not because it's not available to people. Sometimes it's because there's no desire to hear it. People have no appetite for it. You know how we live in this information age? You know, people can satiate themselves with information. They can, they can hear all the time. They can have no end of input. Every moment of every day, on every subject possible, from every source, we can have information. We can be so stuffed with this junk food information that we have no room left for the bread of life to nourish our souls. What we've discovered is that while there's lots of information, there's a lot less knowledge. And although there's some knowledge, there's a lot less wisdom in our world. So we need to have an appetite for the word of God that it might feed us. And there's a great challenge here in verses 3 and 7 of chapter 3. Verse 3 says, Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Verse 7, now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. It seems that Samuel spent every waking and sleeping moment in the presence of God. And yet for all of this, the word of God remained unknown to him. He did not know the Lord. And I suppose that's a word of caution, a word of challenge to us good Sunday night going to church people. We must realize that proximity does not equal affinity. Or proximity does not produce affinity. Just because we are near where the word of God is proclaimed does not mean that it's really touching our lives and we truly know him. It's good to be among God's people. It's a good place to be, but we must never assume that just because we're here, we hear what God is saying to us. It's good to be familiar with the Bible, but that does not necessarily create an eternity-altering relationship with Jesus Christ. So there was this rarity of hearing the Word of God. But secondly, we have to note together the response to the word of God, verses 4 to 7. Then the Lord called to Samuel and he said, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said to him, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Surely you have pictured this little drama in your mind from your earliest days. Surely um, you have heard this story, and it's one of those child, sto- ch- child children's stories sorry, that, that, that we all know. You know, if someone came to do a children's day, somebody eventually is going to tell the story of Samuel. Or if you had a, a children's Bible story, but guaranteed the call of Samuel is in there. Lots of other stories are not there, but the call of Samuel is. And there's a a danger it can be overly familiar to us. We need to see it with fresh eyes. And the rarity of God's word in those days made Samuel lack an expectancy to hear from God. You see, if proximity does not lead to affinity, then expectancy does lead to receptivity. I gave up on this after a while, but... Started there anyway, okay. Expectancy does lead to receptivity. 
you know how this works. Let me give you an illustration that many of you relate to. I can remember being in people's homes. Certain times of the evening I was in visiting and the phone would ring. And they would turn to me and say, let it ring. That's Loretta. I'll ring her back. Many of you knew how that worked. Because you knew, oh, it's about nine o'clock, Loretta will be going to ring and she'll ring and she rang every night. And, and you were familiar with that. Expectation puts you in a place to know who's going to be calling. And some of you will have those times when people call you. And if they don't call, you're worried. But you know, if the phone goes Sunday night, half eight, it's such and such ringing because they always ring. And the application to us is obvious. Do you expect God to speak to you? When you open the Bible, do you expect him to speak? And is your ear attuned to hear his voice? When you read these pages, is God speaking into your heart? Now there are certain preachers, just to use two examples, Martin Lloyd-Jones and John Stott, who for many years I listened to their sermons on cassette tape. I still have, cassette, I don't have a cassette player, but I've got cassette tapes of Lloyd-Jones and John Stott. And consequently, when I read their books, I read with a rich Welsh accent or a rounded English public school accent in my mind. Although the words are written on the page, as I read, I hear them speak to me. Maybe you've done this. It's fascinating when you do. When you hear someone speak on a regular basis and then you read their book, you read with their voice in your mind. Try it sometime. I hear them as I read. Eugene Peterson has written, The primary organ for receiving God's revelation is not the eye that sees, but the ear that hears. Which means our reading of scripture must develop into a hearing of the word of God. Let me confess, maybe you can't join with me, but let me confess that that such a spiritual sense of hearing in me is deeply underdeveloped. And I am grateful that God is patient with me and speaks on to me despite my hearing difficulties. Matthew Henry notes the call which divine grace designs to make effectual shall be repeated until it is so, till we come at the call. And what we see as we read through these verses is that God is gracious to Samuel. He calls him not once, not twice, not three times. Four times he calls him. He doesn't write him off after two attempts, after three attempts, but he calls until he hears, until his attention is grabbed. Praise God for his patient speaking. Do you find it difficult to be around anyone with failing hearing? Frustrating to have to repeat yourself many times to get the message over. Some of you know this too well. Try not to look at anybody in particular, but you know how difficult it is at times. I remember my father, he was in his final days in Ulster Hospital. He, he had only days to live. And I visited him one day, brought my mum up to visit him. And he said, take your mother and get her a hearing aid that works. 
Because we know that if you're with someone who's not hearing well, it, it does test your patience. But how good is our God that he is gracious to us. He speaks until we listen. One of the most beautiful verses in the Bible. Maybe you don't see it as so, but one of the most beautiful verses is Jonah 3 verse 1. Which says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. God was not finished with his disobedient, his deserting prophet. He wanted him to be in Nineveh and he came and called to him again. God is not finished with us. He speaks on. Finally, we see the result of God's word. Verses 10 to 13. The Lord came and stood calling us at other times. Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel, at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. God's word comes. What a heavy, what a harsh word of judgment it is. Do not feel for this young man that this is his first commission, his first message, his first prophecy, and it's a burden for him to bear. Never ever presume that simply to hear from God will be a joyous thing. Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. You know, he, he, he really didn't want to share the message that God placed upon his heart. He, he, he didn't want to have to uh, stand up and declare doom upon the city of Jerusalem. But he says, Jeremiah 20 verse 9, If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it, and I cannot. Jeremiah had to speak out God's word, even though it was at such a cost to him. And Galatians 5.11 speaks of Paul there saying of the offense of the cross. It led to Paul being persecuted because he proclaimed the message. And those who convey God's word have a heart-rending burden to bear. So three challenges as we uh, close. How do we pass on God's message. Because God's message is a word of judgment. How do we convey it? How do we hear it ourselves when we hear a message such as this? Three things, and like our points, they all begin with R. So first one is, is to receive it. When you read God's word and it speaks of judgment, you have to receive it first. Before you, you would seek to pass it on to anybody else, it has to touch your heart first. Samuel's first reaction upon hearing this word should have been to think to himself, if this can happen to Eli, if this can happen to Eli's sons, here serving in the tabernacle, here serving in Shiloh, what might happen to me if I do not guard my heart? You see, sometimes it's very easy for us to to hear a Bible passage and say, well, someone else needs to hear that. I have to pass that on. They need to be convicted of their sin through this word. 
And maybe that's so, but we have to understand first our vulnerability to any and every sin. Sorry to spoil the story, but reading ahead, like Eli's sons, Samuel's sons don't do very well. They prove to be unfit to succeed their father in governing the land. Charles Spurgeon says a a father's holy life is a rich legacy to his sons. And and we we have no reason to say that these men uh, failed as fathers. But their sons did not follow in their footsteps, Eli or Samuel. And the result uh, of hearing the word of God must be to judge our own hearts under it. To receive it for ourselves. So we receive it and then we are to reveal it. In the morning time, Samuel was reluctant to share the message. But he passed it on. Verse 18. So Samuel told Eli everything and hid nothing from him. And Eli said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good in his, what seems good to him. Yes, he was reluctant to share with Eli this news. Surely you understand that. But Eli says to Samuel, Samuel, you know, things are bad, things are going to happen to you if you don't pass on the message. It may not be popular, Samuel, but you've got to let me hear what God said. May God do to you, and more also, if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. Preaching is not a popularity context. You know this, maybe in another way. It's lovely when you have a doctor who has a pleasant bedside manner. But to be honest with you, you don't care whether the doctor is pleasant or not, as long as they can tell you the truth and solve your problems. Because they might be the most pleasant person in the world, but if they cannot deal with the issue that dogs your health, well then, they're no use to you. So whether they're nice or whether they're abrupt, it doesn't really matter as long as they get to the heart of the problem. We need, we need to be spoken to by God. We need the message to be revealed. We're not out to sugarcoat it. We must declare it. We must receive it to ourselves, judge our own hearts under it. We must share it with others, reveal it to others that they might be convicted. Finally, we must repent at the word of God. Here again we have evidence of God's patience. Uh, Chapter 2 tells the story of how God sent a prophet, an unnamed prophet, to Eli with this message of his impending judgment for the wickedness of his sons. And again he sends through Samuel the same message. God is patient. He gives the opportunity to Eli to respond. And our warning must be, at the passivity of Eli. He's shown himself like this all the way through. When he saw the wickedness of his sons, he he told them off, but he didn't intervene appropriately. And even here, he accepts God's will, and, and many people think this is commendable. But what we don't read, maybe it did happen, but we don't read it here, there's no record of his pleading for mercy. There's no record of his repenting of his sins and his feelings as a father. There's no record of him intervening in the lives of his sons to call them uh, to order and to remove them from the evil that they were engaging in. God always, with his word, sends a call to repentance. This is a day of grace. 
And the day of grace was drawing to a close for Eli and his sons. And very soon we'll see uh, what unfolds and how the judgment is enacted. But surely since God had sent this message to him, there was the hope of repentance. God didn't speak so that it could be rejected, but wanted that response that would change Eli's destiny. But it was not to be as we will see. And the chapter closes with the news, the good news, that the famine of hearing God's word had ended. Verses 19 and 20, Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. What a great day that was for Israel. From Coal rain to cork, as it were. The whole of the nation, Dan in the north, to Beersheba in the south, all got to hear about God. All got to know God's purpose, God's will for their lives. All had the opportunity to respond in repentance to his message. May we give thanks in this day that it's a day of grace when God speaks to us to call us to transform our lives by his word. May we rejoice to see that God makes his word available to us, that we would pass it on, that we would declare it to a needy world. That in these days of darkness and disobedience, God wants his people to make his word known so that hearts are transformed, lives are renewed, repentance is engaged in, revival will come, souls will be saved, and God will be glorified. Let's pray together.